Commander! We're pinned down by enemy forces! They're flanking us on every side! We need reinforcements, stat! They need to be willing to do anything for our Lord! They need to be willing to be... RADICAL CHRISTIANS! Who is the mysterious angel who showed up all throughout the Old Testament and destroyed giants? Did Jesus really spend a lot of his ministry stomping demons? And who are the legendary last of the giant slayers? Find out next! Welcome back, Radical Christians. It is good to be back. Today we're gonna get into some really cool stuff. What's new, right? Some really cool stuff. It's one of the things that I think is the raddest in the Bible, and that is the angel of the Lord, also known as the angel of Yahweh, and his role in the Old Testament. Basically, the angel of the Lord shows up all throughout the Old Testament and makes these surprise appearances at these crucial pinch points, these crucial crucial battles in Israelites' history. He also shows up to specific people in specific ways, so it's very interesting. And then we're going to get into Jesus and how uh, we've touched on it many times before, but we're going to take a different look at it of how he directly combated demons and how a lot of it, a lot of it foreshadowed the flood and, and just showed him as a giant slayer. Our study today uses the work of Derek Gilbert for The Last Clash of the Titans and a new book I actually got with donation, a donation that we got on the channel, uh, Ryan Peterson's The Judgment of the Nephilim. So with, with any books, you chew up the fish and spit out the bones. You may not agree with everything in, in uh, a person's book and I wouldn't expect you to believe anything, but you can learn a lot and keep in mind, when you have a disagreement with somebody over something in the Bible, as long as it's not about who Jesus is, it doesn't matter. You know, who God is or who Jesus is, it really doesn't matter. So if somebody thinks that there's no Nephilim after the flood and somebody thinks there are, doesn't matter. If somebody thinks that there's a pre-trib rapture and somebody thinks there's a post-trib rapture, doesn't matter. It's stuff that Jesus would be not too happy with you disagreeing with your brothers over. And that's why when you see all these denom denominations in the Christian faith, it's like, man, get over it. Get over it and, and get to the real work. I don't know what else to say. Let's just get into it. We're going to do some review. We're going to do a, we're going to define demons. So we've already done this, but we're just going to do a brief overview of first Enoch. And then we're going to give you a biblical piece of evidence for the origin of demons. So you don't have to go to first Enoch anymore when your friends ask you, hey, hey, Drew, where are demons from? Now you can go to the Bible. Let's begin. In those days, when the children of man had multiplied, it happened that there were born unto them handsome and beautiful daughters. Can you call women handsome? Hmm. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw them and desired them, and they said to one another, Come, let us take wives for ourselves among the daughters of man, and beget us children. And they took wives unto themselves, and everyone respectively chose one woman for himself, and they began to go unto them. Skip ahead. Then Michael, Surafel, and Gabriel observed carefully from the sky, and they saw much blood being shed upon the earth, and all the oppression being wrought upon the earth. As for the women, they gave birth to giants, to the degree that the whole earth was filled with blood and oppression. And now, behold, the Holy One will cry, and those who have died will bring their suit up to the gate of heaven. Their groaning has ascended into heaven, but they could not get out from before the face of the oppression that is being wrought on the earth. And to Gabriel the Lord said, Proceed against the bastards and the reprobates, and against the children of adultery, and destroy the children of adultery, and expel the children of the watchers from among the people, and send them against one another, so that they may be destroyed in the fight, for length of days they have not. Skip ahead. And when they and all their children have battled with each other, and when they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them for seventy generations underneath the rocks of the ground until the day of their judgment and of their consummation, until the eternal judgment is concluded. But now the giants who are born from the union of the spirits and of the flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, because their dwelling shall be upon the earth and inside the earth. Evil spirits have come out of their bodies, because from the day that they were created from the holy ones, they became the watchers. Their first origin is of the spiritual foundation. They will become evil upon the earth and shall be called evil spirits. So there you go, Enoch, origin of demons. But what? where is our biblical evidence? We can't just rely on the extra biblical stuff. That's like relying on your, your veggies and ignoring the meat. Kinda, maybe. So biblical evidence for giants. Now, in the days of Moses and Joshua, the Israelites came across giant warriors called the Anakim, or the sons of Anak. Now, that's in Numbers 13, and Numbers 13, 32 through 33 tells us that the Anakim came from the Nephilim. 
So we're connecting the Anakim in Numbers to the Nephilim. And the giant clans went by other names as well, such as the Imim, the Zamzumim, and the Rephaim in Deuteronomy 2-3. So now we've connected the Anakim to the Nephilim, which it says they are. Then the other clans mentioned, one of them is the Rephaim. So at the end of the conquest, Joshua said this. He said, There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So this is the end of his conquest, and he's saying, these Only these three cities are there any giants left. So his conquest wasn't fully successful, but he, he did do a pretty great job of clearing them out. Now, all of those three cities were Philistine cities, and one of those, Gath, would be the hometown of Goliath in the days of David. Now, Goliath is a post-flood Nephilim. Some people don't believe that he's Nephilim because it doesn't directly say it, but when your breastplate is 125 pounds or in your spearhead alone is 15 pounds, you can't be a normal human and wield that efficiently in war. Plus his height, gotta be a Nephilim. But anyways, the key to linking the giants to the demons is the term Rephaim. Now, in the Old Testament, the Rephaim are described as giant warlords, but they're also described as frightening and sinister disembodied spirits and spirits of the dead. So they are, they are also called the shades of the underworld and the Hebrew term for the underworld is Sheol. Now there are around 10 references in the Old Testament alone to a place called the Valley of the Rephaim and the book of Joshua tells us that the Valley of the Rephaim is next to the Valley of Hinnom which is also known as the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. Now in Hebrew, the Valley of Hinnom is Gehenom, which is where we get the name Gehenna from, which is a term linked to Hades or hell in the New Testament. So this is where we could see that these are the spirits of the dead. Because they are Nephilim linked to the Rephaim, the Rephaim are described as disembodied spirits, and they're linked to the underworld as spirits of the dead. So there we go. Hopefully you remember that. Now let's move on. We're going to start approaching our talk about the angel of the Lord and another alias he goes by. But before that, we need to address another important concept. So let's continue with our study. The next thing we're going to get into is how corrupted flesh cannot stand before God. So one day, us as Christians will all receive glorified bodies, similar to our angelic brothers. So the angels in Genesis 6 defiled and corrupted their glorified bodies by engaging in sexual intercourse with human females. Now humans have corrupted flesh from Adam, from the first sin. We were corrupted by sin, and we carried that corruption. Now, by these angels mating with humans, the corruption spread onto them like a disease. The actual STD. Sin was an STD, I guess. So their angelic glorified bodies were taken down a peg. They were downgraded. And along with that downgrade, they lost some of their access to the heavenly realm. <sighs> Already hitting you with some gems. So we see that once Adam sinned in the garden, he had to be removed from God's presence. And then some terrifying cherubim were set up to keep him out of there for his own good as well. So another uh, a place where we see an example of corrupted flesh is in the book of Exodus. Now this is, the, this is Moses and his interaction with God. It's Exodus 33, 17 through 20. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. So that's Moses when he was asking God, like, can I, can I see, can I behold you, can I see you? And God says, like, I, I, I have a growing relationship with you, I know you, you know, you're my son, you're my, you're, my, you're my devout follower, but no one can see me in my full glory and live. Now that's because of the corruption of flesh. It would just destroy him. Now in heaven, we won't be, we won't be in corrupted bodies, so we'll be able to see God the Father. And that is a crazy thought. And not just in a vision or when his face is so shining that you can't really tell. Um, I've had a dream where I saw Jesus walking by me and once he passed he looked one way he looked like a normal everyday human when he was walking next to me but then when he walked past me i couldn't see his face i couldn't even understand his language but that's that's a story for another time and remember you can't base any of your theology off of your dreams or visions you take them case by case and if they line up with the bible they're good if not probably ate too much pizza <laughs> anyways second thessalonians says that when Jesus returns in the last days, 
the brightness of his coming will destroy his enemies. So just the brightness of his coming upon all these people with corrupted flesh and the Antichrist with corrupted flesh, poof, explosion, Antichrist guts everywhere. And, and then he'll be defeated. So again, the angels in Genesis 6 forfeited their heavenly status by having sex with women. And they also lose their immortality. Now that sucks. Imagine death is not an option for you and then it becomes one because you are bad. So they lose their immortality in Psalms 82. And if you've been on this channel long enough, you know I love that verse. You know I always bring it up. So it says, I have said, ye are all gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. That is Psalms 82, 6 through 7. So the sons of God who married human women were cast into the abyss, and that's where their corrupted flesh will be locked away until the last days. So now we can properly dip our toe bloop, into the water that is the angel of the Lord slash the angel of Yahweh. So who is this being? This, he is called the Malak Yahweh, and there are basically two main beliefs on who this, this being was. So one of them follows the ancient Jewish teaching of called the two powers in heaven, where they, had, they believed that there was basically the power that was in heaven and, and then a, a separate power that interacted with him, they saw evidence of two beings interacting that were the same being. Now, in hindsight, in the new, with it having Jesus come, we can see that easily. Back then, they noticed it. They didn't kind of fully grasp that the same way, but they did, they did have a clue of it. So now, the first main identify, identification of the angel of the Lord is Yahweh in bodily form. So God the Father in bodily form. The God of the Hebrew Bible does have a body. A body would be something located in a particular place at a particular time. So if the angel of the Lord is Yahweh, this shows that Yahweh has a body because he showed it. He showed it a visible version of his body through this angel. So Exodus 23, 20 through 22 helps us to understand this angel as, as the bodily Yahweh. It says, Behold, I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now, when it says my name is in him, anytime we're talking about God's name or the name, that's him. And here we see that this angel has the, the authority to withhold forgiveness for the sin of disobedience. Now, can normal angels do that? No way. No way. So we also see that Jesus has this authority in the Gospels when the Pharisees, they, well, they're getting mad at him. They're like, who could forgive sins but God alone? And it's like, you're right. Nope, you can't forgive sins except God alone. And then when Jesus started doing all his miracles, proving that he was God in, in bodily form as well, this made the case that he, you know, he was God. So in Genesis 28, 10 through 22, you have the Jacob's ladder story, and it's Jacob's first encounter with Yahweh. And Jacob sees Yahweh standing which means he had a visible form. Now, if you can't see Yahweh and live, but he saw Yahweh standing there, that means that this is a different form of Yahweh, the angel. This is the angel version. So Jacob was so blown away, he named the location Bethel, which is house of God. And he erected a stone pillar to commemorate the event. And then the, the same event is referenced in Genesis 31. So we're going to look at Genesis 31, 11 through 13. And it says, then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go up from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So this angel of God tells Jacob that he was the God of Bethel. So that connects him right away. Basically letting Jacob know that he's seen him before. Now, just reading this, a personal thing with me, I have a personal um, attachment to this story. And let me just tell you, Jacob and Laban, Jacob had to work 14 years for his wives, seven, and then he got deceived and got, they gave him the wrong daughter. They gave him Leah instead of Rachel. And he worked another seven years. And I think even more after that, but he didn't throw up his hands and rage quit. He kept going and guess what God did? God blessed him and God defended him and God will defend you. You know, times where you're being wronged or you're being cheated or you're having to work 14 years for your, your wife, God will defend you. 
Don't take it into your own hands. A foolish man takes takes revenge into his own hands. Romans twelve nineteen says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. So you're stealing from God. You're stealing his job, his duty, his vengeance, and you you are now like 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 we talked about, corrupting your flesh further by taking revenge. So just this is a side note. Wasn't even planning on talk about talking about this, but God will defend you. So let him and rest in the fact that nobody gets away with anything. You know, it's it's hard to let go of that control, but you have to. So let's get back to it. Now in Genesis 32, Jacob encounters a divine man and has a physical struggle, a wrestling match. Ding, 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 ding. So let's look at verse 28 through 30 of Genesis 32. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, meaning for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And the word God there is Elohim. So right there, he wrestled with God. He didn't wrestle with a substitute. So this angel that talked to him and, and said, you know, you have striven with God and prevailed. He wasn't a stand in. He wasn't God's tag team partner. He was the angel of the Lord. So Jacob wrestled with him. Now, did Jacob actually, you know, beat him by his own strength? No. The angel had to have let him win because angels are, I mean, did he really win? He got his hip dislocated, but let's move on. So now we're going to look at a different aspect of this, the commander of Yahweh's army, the Lord of hosts. So the, the commander can also be called a prince, but this is the commander of Yahweh's heavenly host who appeared to Joshua. Now, this is, this is another one of my favorite parts of the Bible because it's, it's better than any fantasy story. So when I say that about the Bible, this is one of those times. So I've actually used this scene for a project of mine that I'll be announcing very soon. And guess where I'll be announcing it? Derek Gilbert's podcast. Hey, but that's all I'm going to say. So basically, the commander of Yahweh's army. So Joshua, so we're going to look at Joshua 5, 13 through 15. One of the coolest parts of the Bible. One of my top scenes. One of my top visual scenes that I love of the Bible. So it says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell to his face to the earth and worshiped him and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So right there, man, that's cool. So Joshua was sta- I picture him standing on this cliff overlooking where he's about to have his battle, or like overlooking Jericho. And then this man walks up. And he kind of makes out the silhouette of this man. He looks strong, and and he has a sword. So Joshua is probably like, oh man, is this one of my guys or one of their guys? So Joshua is probably ready to grab his sword, and he's like, hey, are you for them or for us? And then the, the angel speaks and says, neither. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And just imagine Joshua's heart going, like, you know, when you get scared or for, for millennials, when you dropped your iPhone and you're waiting to see if the screen is cracked, you know, your, your, your heart is in your throat. That times a million is probably what he felt. So then he, his heart just stops. He's like, oh, <clears throat> and he fell to his face and started worshiping. Now that falls in line with all the other verses about every knee shall bow. So he probably just boom, shot down like a missile. And this is similar to the burning bush incident of Exodus 3. Because in the burning bush incident, Yahweh tells Moses, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. So another angel wouldn't make that ground holy. So a normal angel delivering a message, other times in the Bible, they don't say that the ground is holy. They don't tell them to take off sandals. So the, this shows that this angel was a diff- of a different ranking because he was on holy ground and he was the only one there. So... So this angel being the angel of the Lord, uh, being Yahweh in bodily form, is confirmed by Acts 7, 30-31, where Stephen says that an angel appeared to Moses in the bush and the voice of the Lord emerged from it. So he saw and heard. Now, if he heard the voice of the Lord, that's, that's the man in the heavenly realm. That's not the man, but that's God the Father. Now, if he saw him, you can't see him and live. So that had to be him in an angelic form or the other theory that we're going to get into. But both of those identify the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh as the same being. 
So another cool thing about the Joshua verse that shows that he's speaking to the embodied version of Yahweh is that this is the phrase, a man standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. So the phrase, a sword drawn in his hand, it's called Harbo Shalufa Beato, I think. It occurs only two times in the Hebrew Bible. And these two times where it says, you know, his drawn sword in his hand, one of them was when Balaam was riding his donkey and the angel showed up. So that's Numbers 22, 23, it says, And Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. So that's another time where the angel of the Lord showed up to Balaam, knocked him off his donkey. The other time is in First Chronicles 21, 16, and it says, David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So this is David seeing a vision, and he sees the angel specifically using the phrase, in his hand a drawn sword. And that's interesting. For him. Think of Yahweh himself showing his bodily form to you. That's really, like, must be important. So there's many other times where the angel of the Lord, the commander of, of the Lord's army shows up. Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar. Uh, Genesis 22, the, Lord's, the angel of the Lord speaks to Abraham. Judges 2, we talked about the angel of the Lord appears to Israel. And Judges 6, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. Judges 13, the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah. Zechariah 1, the angel of the Lord pleads with the Lord to have mercy on Jerusalem over the cities of, of Judah. And Zechariah 3, the angel of the Lord takes away the sin of the high priest Joshua. So there's many, many other times where this happens. So now we're getting into the second main thought on who this angel was. And it's very similar, but this is, this is kind of where I, this is what I believe. This is what I've always believed. Exodus 23, 20 through 23. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice and provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. So the other theory is that this angel is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So if you think of the embodied Yahweh, if Yahweh and Jesus are two parts of the same person, two parts of the same whole, then it's not that much different of a theory, but it, it we'll get into why I think this one makes much more sense. And it, with this one, it shows that Jesus went and took on the Nephilim clans head to head. So that means he was the one on top of on top of the hill with Joshua overlooking Jericho before the battle. So he was there with Moses. He was there at all these pivotal moments. It's like a movie where the, for, the character they foreshadow shows up in different spots and helps the main character and at the end you find out oh it was him all along so the book of exodus kind of confirms that jesus was the angel of the lord so this is exodus 3 2 through 6 and this is the burning bush incident and the angel of the lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush and he looked and behold the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed and moses said i will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt and when the lord saw that he turned aside to see God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from thy feet for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. It says he saw the, the Lord appeared to him in the bush and then spoke. So he visibly saw the angel of the Lord in the bush and heard God the Father from heaven speaking to him. Again, he couldn't have seen God the Father in his true form because it would have killed him. Now he was afraid to look even on this form. We know from Colossians 2, 9 that, that in Jesus dwell, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So that's said about him. So it says all the fullness of the Godhead is dwelt in a body, which is Jesus. And in the New Testament, Jesus himself said that, not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is God, he hath seen the Father. So since you can't see God the Father, and Jesus himself said that, that no man has seen him, this points to Jesus being the one. And, and the one, that, one of the parts that really sells it for me is, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now again, it could be either or. I think it just makes sense that God's body would be Jesus and it would be, you know, before Jesus was born as Jesus, that he was there. So him in heaven, before he came down to earth and was born as a baby and grew up into a man, he was in heaven. So he, I think, was the angel of the Lord making these cameos and stomping these Nephilim all throughout the Old Testament for the Israelites, all the enemies of Israel, of the Israelites, he was stomping. 
Now, Psalms 44, 1-3 credits God with clearing out the Canaanites on behalf of Israel. And it says, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us, what work thou didst in their days, in the times of old, how thou didst drive out the heathens with thy hand, and plantest them, how thou didst afflict the people, and cast them out. For they, Israel, got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but thy right hand, and thine arm, and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst a favor unto them. Now the light of thy countenance, countenance, um, invokes images of light and and shining one which is an angel so that right there makes a good case for for the angel of the lord being there and doing those victories well and they flat out said it so that makes a good case too so now this would mean that it was jesus who whooped the armies of og and sihon which were two nephilim kings so in psalms 136 they're celebrating this victory and in psalms 136 17 through 21 it says to him which smote great kings for his mercy endureth forever and slew famous kings for his mercy endureth forever sihon king of the amorites for his mercy endureth forever and og the king of of bashan for his mercy endureth forever and gave their land for an heritage for his mercy endureth forever that's cool so this marks the end of our old testament study of the angel of the lord or the angel of yahweh to sum up it's either yahweh in bodily form or the pre-incarnate Jesus. I hold to the fact that it's a pre-incarnate Jesus because in him dwells the full Godhead bodily and he is the body of Yahweh. So that's where I stand. You make your own case. And if you pick something different than those two I gave you, I'll find you. Now let's move into the New Testament, something I've touched on many times in this channel. So I'm not gonna give you a lot of the same stuff, but, but yeah, a lot of it will be familiar. It's Jesus versus the Nephilim. So how did Jesus fight the Nephilim? We know in the Old Testament, if he was the angel of the Lord, which I believe he is, he fought them directly. So he fought the direct giants. Now, in the New Testament, we're going to find out why we we got into the origin of demons in the beginning of this episode. So demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, my friends. We know this. So anytime Jesus interacted with a demon, he was interacting with a giant, aka a Nephilim, which means when he was casting them out like nothing, he was throwing giants across the land, spanking them, sending them off, having them beg to go into pigs. That's Jesus. That's your Jesus. That's my Jesus. So when Yahweh disinherited the nations in Deuteronomy 32, he reserved one nation for himself, and that was Israel. So the people and the land of Israel belonged to Yahweh, and the demons occupied that land before Jesus came to reclaim it. Now they were evil trespassers who were corrupting his land, just like their flesh was corrupted. They were corrupting his land. Now his land, as we know, was holy ground that was being defiled. So anywhere Yahweh is, is holy ground. So when, when Jesus showed up, they were now in the holiest of ground. Now, this concept of holy ground, there's an example of it in 1 Samuel 26, 18 through 19, where David understood this concept, and he was afraid that he, was, he wouldn't even be able to worship Yahweh if he was outside of Israel, in the pagan God's territory, in the rebellious sons of God, their territory. And that verse says, And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my Lord, the King, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. So by him being kind of chased out of Israel, he was like, Man, you're screwing me over, because now my, um, it's not, my prayers to Yahweh aren't going to work, basically. Now, I don't think necessarily that would be true, but I would think that what would be true is these pagan gods had more power in those areas. So not that God had less, but but he disinherited them, and these pagan gods had power over those areas. So now, we're going to look at another spot in Jesus' ministry where he completely owns demons. So last episode, we, we reviewed that he went to the, the gates of hell, the grotto of Pan, the base of Mount Hermon, and said to Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against me. Then he climbed Mount Hermon for the transfiguration and showed himself as divine, took back that mountain, which was the Canaanite El's sacred mountain with his 72 sons, or 70 or 72, however you see the translation. And then I show, I, we, I went over with you how God sent his 72 soldiers out. So let's, let's get into some of that. So Mark 1, 23 through 24 says, And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Thou art come to destroy us? I know thee who art thou, the Holy One of God. 
So right there, this this demon legion says, I know who you are. And now here's something great and something so cool. So where where would Legion know him from? Now, Legion is a group of demons. So this group of demons were once a group of giants. Now the angel of the Lord was with Israel while they stomped giants. Now everybody else sees Jesus as this, you know, humble, peacemaking, almost pacifist from their point of view at the time, just this normal man who's doing these miracles, but just this man who, who, who didn't stand up for himself against Pilate, you know, they did, they saw, they, they didn't see his true power, but they saw him as just this humble human, not the demons. The demons saw him as this super powerful force of Yahweh, this super vicious, strong, undefeated giant slayer. So when they saw Jesus, they could see into the spirit realms. They could see who he really was. And they, they're just like, man, that's the angel of the Lord who destroyed us. He's the reason why we're, we're demons now. That's cool. So imagine all the stuff in the spirit realm. This is a tangent and I'm going to go down it. Imagine all the stuff in the spirit realm that God hides from us. Now, I, I'm starting to think that the reason why there's not a ton of stuff about the enemy in the Bible it, you really have to dig for it, but the reason why there's not a lot of that stuff is because it would terrify people. It would demoralize them. It would make them sick to their stomachs. When you think of the worst disgusting thing a human can do, the most vile act, the most perverse, disgusting act, that's nothing to what demons can do, can, can, to what 6,000-year-old you know, spirits who have a capacity for higher evil can do. So these things were more powerful. So you have an angel who's more powerful. And this is another reason why they probably, you know, think that they could defeat Yahweh or or think that they could change the plan is because they are so evil. They're way more evil than a person can be. So their thinking goes way beyond. They probably think they have some master plan or they just think they can build a case for themselves of, hey, look how corrupted we made, made humans and you're going to forgive them. So you have to forgive us. But with more power comes more capacity for evil, you know, possibly. So then you look at these giants, whatever disgusting things a human can do, they could they could do way worse. There's stories of them, the, just the cannibal stories, the blood drinking, sodomites going after each other's flesh, um, and then the, the dark secrets from heaven their fathers taught them. It's just, it's a blessing that God spares us from seeing into the spirit realm. Uh, I talked to a person who could see into the spirit realm, according to him, and I don't know for sure if he can or not, but he told me some very interesting things. And, and from what he told me, I think he's spared a lot of stuff too, if it's, if it's true. But I also saw videos of another guy who could see in the spirit realm and he was just disgusted. He was just like, you wouldn't believe what they do to blaspheme God and it's horrible and, and I, I can't turn it off. It's the worst thing, blah, blah, blah. Basically, just think of what God hides from you. So if the, if the, if the angels sinned against all creation, they sinned against humans, and made giants, they sinned with animals and made monsters, and they, and they sinned against the plants, imagine that. So you have these, so let's say they sinned against the trees and they create this weird hybrid living tree. You know, so everywhere you look in the spirit realm, everything is corrupted. Just like before the flood, everything was corrupted. I think now everything is corrupted. Yeah, this is just a tangent, but it's very interesting. It's very interesting. But just, man, thank God. Thank you right now, Father, for sparing us from all this horrible, horrible stuff that's around us. And please protect us all. You know, thank you. Anyways, let's get back to this. So the demonic activity around the time of Jesus' ministry was way ramped up. Now, it was it was left everywhere he went, there was demonic stuff happening. So we see in Mark 3, 11 through 12, it says... And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. So right there, they crumbled at his presence. And they're just like, man, you're the Son of God. Now, did they tell him that because he didn't know? No, I think they were just blown away, like, you're him. And they knew. And then Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone. Because he had a plan, and his plan worked. So let's look at Luke 4, 33 through 37. It says, And in the synagogues there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil, and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, 
he came out of him and heard him not. And they were amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place in the country round about. So he told the demons not to tell anybody about him. They knew who he was. They called him the Holy One. They knew him as the one who most likely killed them in the Old Testament. Now, the other people went and told everybody about this, which is to be expected. So the reason why Jesus said, don't tell anyone about me, was because not everybody could see his plan clear as day. Almost nobody could. That's why the Jews didn't see him for who he was. They didn't see Jesus as, or they didn't see Jesus as the suffering servant that he was. They wanted the conquering king. So they wanted the the conquering war hero who would finally set things straight. He will be that in the last days. But when he came as the suffering servant to die for all mankind, they didn't understand it. So all the signs that we look at now that point to Jesus coming, it's so easy to sit back and be like, oh yeah, that's super obvious. You know, how do they not know? How did the enemy not know? They're supposed to be super smart, divine beings. Well, God is smarter and he made this plan. He hid this plan. He he crafted it in such a way where it wasn't obvious. Now, what about the end times? That's the same way, I think. When it actually happens and we look back, we're going to be like, oh, that's how, that's what he, of course, of course, of course. But right now, when we're, we're trying to piece things together, that's why you have so many different theories of, of what's going to happen. Because it is, it has to be hidden from the enemy. That's my point. It has to be hidden from the enemy. Or else he would stop it. He would try to. But just wait till we really see what's going to happen. Now these spirits saying, or were saying stuff like, Thou art come to destroy us. So they, And they knew Jesus as the Holy One. Now that's a title used in the Old Testament, which signified him as both God and Messiah. That's 2 Kings 19.22, Psalms 16.10, and Psalms 89.18 if you want to look that up. So that title was a very special title that signified him as that. And these demons were under the authority of Jesus and immediately obeyed his commands. There was no fight back. There was no pushback. It was just boom. He said it. They did it. And this showed his power over all creation. And and his power over demons showed that he was the son of God. So next we're going to get into the the judgment that these demons had and how it was kind of foreshadowed by Jesus. So we're going to check out Mark 5, 1 through 5. It says, And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because he had been often bound with chains and fetters. And the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. That's sad. The demon-oppressed man. So it says he was crying. I never really noticed that till reading it right now, that he was crying. So he still had some presence of mind, but he was tormented by these things. Now, the gatherings were located in Bashan, which was the home base of the Rephaim king Og, who was the last of the Rephaim, he was called. And an interesting, so some very interesting things is the demon-possessed man was in the tombs. Now, this calls back to mind the evil necromancy rituals and occult practices that were banned in the Old Testament. So he was in the tomb, so it's kind of linking him to that. Now, this man had supernatural strength. He couldn't be bound or tamed by any men or even by chains. Now, who else has supernatural strength? The giants. Now, if a spirit of a giant is controlling you or oppressing you or using you as an avatar, basically, you're going to have freak strength. Now, that that freak strength is going to be used to harm others or harm yourself. And that's why you have these demon possession stories where these are not, I don't know about possession, but these demon stories where... People are throwing stuff around. People can't hold a person down. It's straight out of the Bible. So another interesting thing is that the man was bound with chains. Now, the reason what this foreshadowed was the fallen angels that are their fathers who are bound in chains right now in the abyss until the last day. So this man was bound in chains. So we see clues in this passage that foreshadowed the, the end fate of these beings. And it's important to note that the nature of a demon is the exact same as the nature of Nephilim, if not worse. So unbridled rage, violence, lust, and a never-ending appetite for sin, and probably a hate for God, a fear, a fear of God for sure. So now these things in a person, that basically these demons want to want to use humans to exercise their their appetites. But yeah, so the, the same way giants were, demons are as well, if not worse, with their their nature. And for example, the demon that in Luke eight twenty seven. The, the man there that was demonized, it made him get naked and he started slashing himself with stones. And in Mark 5, we see him cutting himself with stones as well and crying. So these aren't good things, obviously. 
Now in Luke 8, 30-31, it says, And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And he besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. So Legion begged Jesus, Don't send us into the deep. So the word for deep is Hades in the Old Testament, or the place of punishment for the angels who sinned, similar to Tartarus. Um, I'm pretty sure they could be synonymous in certain cases, but that's what the deep is. So don't send us, don't send us there where you sent our fathers. So they know about that. They know about the existence of the abyss. And this also shows that Jesus was God because he had the power to send him there. So now we're going to look at the pig incident. So Mark 5, 11 through 13, and this is a very verse heavy episode. So it's good because what, what, what more could I say besides reading the word? So it's kind of cheating for me because it'll never return void. So Mark 5, 11 through 13. Now there was nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, and all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000, and they were choked in the sea. So these demons wanted to go into a body, an animal body. They settled for an animal body instead of going to the abyss. When they did that, the pigs had enough sense to run into the water and rid themselves of these things, and they ended up choking on the water and dying. What does that remind you of? That's the spirits of the giants going into the water and the pigs dying and choking. So this mirrors the flood. And pigs were ritually unclean animals that the Israelites were forbidden to eat and sometimes even touch. So these unclean creatures violently, it says, jumped into the waters and drowned. That's very reminiscent of the flood. Because the antediluvian giants, who once were the kings of the earth, were destroyed in the flood. Now, let's get into how Jesus' power over demons revealed him as the Messiah. So, in the Gospels, you have the unclean spirits being the corrupted souls of the Nephilim giants. And time and time again, everybody around Jesus saw that he had full authority over these spirits. He commanded them at will, and they were terrified as they obeyed him. Right there, that proved that he was the Son of God. So, we have Matthew 9... 32 through 33 and they went out as they went out behold they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil and when the devil was cast out the dumb spake and the multitudes marveled saying it was never so seen in israel so right there the people recognized man this guy's special next is matthew 12 22 through 23 then was brought unto him one possessed with the devil blind and dumb and he healed him insomuch as the blind and dumb both spake and saw and all the people were amazed and said, Is he not the son of David? Right there, more evidence. Next is Luke 4, 33-37. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil, and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone, and what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Thou art come to destroy us. I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the, the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him, and heard him not. And they were amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commanded the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went throughout every place of the country round about. So no matter how powerful these, these demonic spirits were, making people jump into fires, making people cut themselves with stones, you know, giving them superhuman strength, they were no match for Jesus, who, who just at one word could command them out of anybody and into wherever he wanted. Then you have Luke 11, 17-20, where the Pharisees accused Jesus of having a demon in himself. And that was the, you know, the unpardonable sin. They're, they're calling what he was doing from the, the demons. It says, But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is upon you. Now this says with the finger of God. That's how little effort it takes to, get, to cast these things out. Now he showed that he was of God with this verse. And again, his dominion over these spirits revealed him to be the very same giant slayer of Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. We are almost at the end of our journey. It's a good one. Ne our next section, before our last section, is Jesus proclaiming his victory to the fallen angels in the abyss. So 1 Peter 3, 
18 through 20. For Christ also hath once suffered our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. So he went and Jesus went and spoke with the fallen angels who fathered the Nephilim. And by this point, they have already been in prison for a thousand years. So the New Testament has two Greek words translated as preach. So it says he went to preach to the spirits in prison. Now in the King James Version, the word is kariso, which is the word used above. And it means to be a herald, officiate or officiate as a herald. Now the, this to be a herald is like, you know, the guys with the trumpets, you know, announcing stuff in medieval times. So he went and heralded to the spirits in prison. He went and announced, proclaimed, declared. So he was going there and saying, you know, declaring his his uh, victory and reclamation of his people and his, his land. So now by doing this, he set up a fulfillment of a future scripture. So in the book of Philippians, we see the exaltation of Jesus after his victory on the cross. Now, from keep in mind, he, did, he, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, in the abyss, under the earth. So now Philippians 2, 6 through 10 says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of all things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth. All things shall bow, things under the earth, the angels he preached to. Pretty cool. Now, we saw the angel of the Lord defeating the giants in the Old Testament. We see Jesus defeating their spirits in the New Testament. Now, there is a group of people defeating giants now, after Jesus. Who is this group? Think about it. Try to guess. Who are the last remaining giant slayers on this planet? Who? We are. We are the last remaining giant slayers. You and me and all of the believers in, in Christ. So did you think David beat Goliath because he was strong? No, he was a 14-year-old boy. God helped him. God helps us. God will help you. You are made in his image to do greater things than Jesus. According to his own words, these things he did and more and greater things we will do in his name. Alone, apart from him, we are nothing. With him, we are everything. He is everything. Everybody can be used if you answer God's call. Everybody's unique and different. You have, you have to be yourself. Why would God go through the trouble of fearfully and wonderfully creating each one of us unique if he wanted you to all act the same? He goes by the inward appearance and man goes by the outward appearance. You have to be true to yourself. You have to be who he made you to be. And guess what? You have to be engaged in spiritual warfare. You have to get into the full armor of God, future episode. And you have to use the sword of the spirit. Me and my wife pray for the full armor of God every single day. And if you don't wield the sword every single day, you, what happens when the time for battle comes? If, if you do not practice your craft, if you do not hone your skills, then what happens when you need them? You need to be in the word every day, even if it's one chapter here and there. Read it, learn it, study it. What happens when the devil comes with lies? You need to know the truth. Not only that, but you need to get demons away from you and your family. You think these spirits are, are ancient and gone now? No, they're ancient, but they're here. You know how many sicknesses are caused by these things? You know how many, you know, they cause people to be deaf and blind, deaf and dumb. They cause people to slash themselves with stones. Tons of these mental, mental diseases out now, I suspect, and I think a lot of you suspect too, are demonic oppression. And all this pharmacaea, all this medicines pumped into everybody, what do you think it does? It dumbs you down. It makes you makes you sedate, and it makes you a weak warrior of God. Stand and fight. You are in this battle. You are in this battle, and it's an honor. And the greatest thing a man can do is to give his life for a brother. If you end up having to give your life for God, that that is the greatest honor ever. And here's the thing: if you like loving your life unto death, if you're so worried about dying, in any circumstance, if you live in fear, you're doing it wrong, man. Everybody's gonna die everybody's gonna die you you have to go out on your shield you're in this fight and guess what accept your fate Romans says give your body as a living sacrifice so in your mind you know that your life and your body is now Jesus's so if he calls you to be sacrificed as a martyr some crazy way 
or or killed for your faith hey that's your king saying that i'm not saying go out and do that don't mis misunderstand me i'm saying if he says that then you know then that's what you do if that doesn't happen and your 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 call on life is to sit and do the day-to-day -day and grind out some some existence in jail even dude one of the happiest books in the bible philippians was written in jail man you have to get good with your sword get good at winning the small battles you pick up your sword and you, you cut a couple fruits you, you start small then you go to battle with it everyone has their own mission everyone is a part of the body at hand is not a foot you are you god made you to be on this earth and one thing i always take comfort in always i take comfort in this think about this if these are the last days which they are and god put you here then you don't need to fear because he put you here for a reason it's not a mistake you're not just in the scariest time for no reason you are here because he needs he wants you here as his end times warrior so either answer the call or not guess what if you don't answer your call do you think all your missions don't get done wrong someone else will do them the next guy the next faithful guy will do them god will get his work done be a part of it give your life for this faith man what does anything else matter go out on your shield you just you battle until you die you are not here for an easy life you are here for a godly life. There's a phrase that people say, I'm not here for a long time, I'm here for a good time. That's worldly stupidity. I'm not here for a good time, I'm here for a short time. I'm here for a godly time. That's my version of that. This is, if you, and remember, the trying of your faith, the trials and perseverance, or the, the trials lead to perseverance, which leads to the building of characters, leads to who you become. The banging of metal in the forge refines it. Iron sharpens iron. Remember these things. You are the end days giant slayer. Does that mean you're gonna have a literal sword cutting down giants? Maybe, maybe not. But what it does mean is you're gonna have a spiritual sword cutting down spiritual giants if you decide to wake up. Wake up, you are in a battle. Protect your family, protect others. And if you end up losing your mortal life because of it, then you go to heaven. You go to be with the Lord. What does it matter? You have. We have the best joy of the world. We have the best joy of anything. The joy of the Lord. This is. We have the answers. All the answers we need. Upon death, upon physical death, we experience life, and life more abundantly. We get to be with our Father, the same Father who created you, the same Father who created me. I want to meet Him. It's humbling to think that he created us. Why? Like you think of your life and all the hard things you've gone through, and and all the all the failures you have, and you think, man, I'm I'm ashamed to stand before God. He made you. He's there with those failures. It just matters how you finish. It just matters how you finish. This is a great time, and times for Christians will get worse. With the next commander of this nation after our current one. It's going to come hit the Christians hard. But guess what? The hard times make the strong people. So, God bless you all. God bless you all. Get your sword and fight. You are the last days giant slayers. We all are now. And these are the last days. This is the last, you know, this may be your last call to wake up. But do it. I love you all. You're all great. Keep serving the Lord. He is a true and faithful master and he is the best.